I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And this is Jason. Hey, guys. And you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Thank you for coming back, everybody. This is it. Our last episode of season three. Kind of crazy. This flew by and we are all back together. Seems like it's been forever. (laughs) Been a while. There's been a few episodes between now and... uh, a while ago that uh, we were all on the same call together. <laughs> but today we are talking about off-grid homes, which Jason, you brought this one to the table. Uh, this was your idea, your contribution. Yeah, I feel smart. Okay. <laughs> feel, 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 not I am feel. <laughs> so I think this will be a good conversation. We have a couple of good guests uh, that are going to pro- provide some unique perspectives to the conversation. So we'll get into that in a second. But again, this is the end of season three. So we will be taking a brief, not brief, a very long break uh, because we need to focus on our day jobs and get paid, uh, particularly me, <laughs> who... Uh, it's not getting paid. all the heavy lifting. It's not getting paid for this. So I'll focus on uh, some work and then uh, Gable Media and get, continuing to get that thing going. So um, still follow along with Gable Media and keep in touch there. But 
as far as spaces um, while we're on our hiatus please make sure to stay subscribed because you won't know when we come back if you're not subscribed so stay subscribed um, in the meantime if you have not yet please leave uh, leave us a rating and a review on apple podcasts in particular because that ratings reviews and subscriptions make our podcast be more visible to other people and that ultimately will lead to us being able to continue the podcast so if you enjoy it please leave a rating a review and stay subscribed and one last favor is to share an episode with a friend who will enjoy it so please do those things Uh, i know you hear everybody talk about them but it's very important so please if you want us to keep going please do that. Um, And then, as I mentioned with Gable Media, in the meantime, there's tons of content over there. Uh, It's gablmedia.com. There's Entre Architect Podcasts, Archispeak, Build Your Brand, uh, Practice Disrupted, and TRXL, which are all really great podcasts. And I almost forgot we have video now on Gable Media, so you can check out Show It Better and 30 by 40 design workshop which are both streaming on gablemedia.com which are also great content to follow along and keep you entertained while we're out um now back to this episode uh do you guys have any thoughts for this season or our off season uh i don't know about thought wow i can't believe we made it um i can't believe we were able to do as much as actually got done this year yeah we did 40 we'll have 46 episodes for this season i mean i was laughing i was laughing about that last night it's like anybody who with 2020 has just sort of cut off themselves from everything if they come back they're gonna see 44 46 episodes and like what in the world well not only that, like I was, I mean, first off that we've made it and, and Michelle's right. You know, I know I've tried to say it too. Like you've done all of the lifting with these types of things. And I think you even shared some numbers with we, with me to how many crazy people listen to us every month. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was like, just blown away. So, um, you know, I, it's, it's exciting that people are interested in the things that we're talking about. Um, obviously wanted to get that feedback from people as well, whenever possible. Um, but I, I, you know, it's been a year. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just been a year. I mean, there's been pandemics, there's been crazy economic times, there's been babies, you know what I mean? Like all these kind of things. And you're just like, Holy crap. And all that still got done. Yeah. Um, and we're still going to talk about your hair right now. So I don't know if people can see this or not, but man, that is, that is, that is something to behold. Let me tell you. <laughs> my, my quarantine hair. Quarantine awesome. pro. <laughs> Michelle. Jason summed it up pretty well. I mean, it's, I, I unfortunately feel like I missed a big portion of the year. Um, I had to cut out basically what July didn't really come back until mid October yeah. uh, just because of my baby. So that's a bright spot of 2020, right? Yeah. 46 episodes and a baby. Um, so <laughs> sounds no like a TV show there. sitcom coming next. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I guess if you look at our industry, you know, in the industry being real estate and building, um, we're all still gainfully employed and it seems like it seems like there's some silver linings and our industry is doing really really well right now so uh it's been a chaotic year for sure uh, but really exciting things happening uh business-wise at least in our industry Mm -hmm. 
And speaking of that, it seems like a lot of builders in particular are starting to take up some of these innovative concepts and trying to do some new things, which leads me into our topic for today is uh, off-grid construction, off-grid homes. We'll get into uh, one of our guests who is a builder and sort of taking up that mantle of innovative design and thinking and, and construction. But do you guys have any initial thoughts about off-grid homes? Not initial, well, I guess. Or perception? Well, I don't know a lot about it. So when I think of an off-grid home, what I where my mind goes is to like Alaska, right? I think like there's a, t- there's a channel um, where they have a show that kind of focuses on off-grid homes and they're always in the middle of nowhere and, you know, they're not connecting to whatever the local power sources or local, you know, sewer water. But I don't know how that plays into, like, how does an off-grid home work in an area like Southern California? Like, I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know a lot about it, to be honest. I'm pretty excited about this episode. Yeah. Uh, Jason, so you brought it up. Why did you bring it up? And uh, and what what are your initial thoughts or perceptions? So... I think it's a super cool concept, right? And I've seen, you know, cause I'm kind of a um, industry junkie in ways. So I watch a lot of the same stuff that Michelle's referring to. And I see these knuckleheads building this stuff off grid um, and how terrible some of it is. But then also then you get into the guys that do it professionally and how, how cool it can be and how sustainable it can be and how you can literally just completely live off of the land, if you will. Right. Um, and I think it's super interesting. And at some point we're going to like, there, like, infrastructure can only handle so much and it's only going to upgrade and upgrade and upgrade so much, I think. Right. So if you could mix in some of these types of things where you can literally be self-sustaining all the way through, I mean, that's a pretty amazing idea. Um, And I've seen stuff where it's like the, the mini home that's on a trailer where they do that. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, Where those are kind of ridiculous. And we talked to somebody that I think did that, you know, several episodes back and had really neat looking smaller mini homes, right. Or whatever those were called. What was that? I think that was, I think you're talking about our tiny home episode. Yeah, um, that's what it was. Tiny home, mini home, tiny home, tiny home is the, be- the better phrase. Yeah. But then I've also seen stuff where they literally build, you know, they're generally smaller structures, um, you know, that are completely off the grid. And I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Michelle's right. I see a lot of times where it's off in the wilderness, you know, where people are just like, like getting off grid, not necessarily the homes off grid, but they're just like off grid. Yeah which is crazy right. to me. I could never do that. Yeah. But, but I, the bears. yeah, I mean, I'd be down with that, but, but I think the, the, just the idea of what if you had a bunch of these that were mixed into the infrastructure we have now currently, you know what I mean? It could be a totally separate idea. And obviously the guys that we're going to talk to today have a bit more modernization take on that mm-hmm. um, from a, from a factory perspective, I think is, is what we're looking at. Um, so it shows the flexibility and the dexterity that can actually be had. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm interested in, 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 in talking with them, but I just think it's a really cool concept. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll actually go ahead and bring them in right now. So our first guest is the chief innovation officer at Devel, a high-end modular home builder based in San Diego. He's a certified master builder with numerous professional affiliations and accolades, way too many for us to list right here. But he is well accomplished and a pioneer in the green building movement and an expert in building high quality, durable, and efficient homes. Please help me welcome Brandon Weiss. 
Brennan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Demetrius. Look forward to this. Yeah, us too. Um, and then I'll bring in our second guest, who is principal architect at Sovereign Architecture, based in upstate New York, where he works with clients uh, nationwide to create homes designed around their unique personalities, passions, and values. With a personal and professional background in sustainability, he's designed, built, and lived in his own off-grid home himself. He now brings that education and experience to his clients to help create spaces that inspire their own epic vision. Please help me welcome Aaron Henderson. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Brandon, Aaron, um, really excited to have you guys both on. Let's start off. Um, Aaron, I'll, I'll start with you. If an alien were to come onto this planet and see the phrase off-grid homes, how would you describe to them what off-grid, what an off-grid home is? That's an interesting way to frame the question. It actually sets me up perfectly to explain it because in a lot of ways, an off-grid home, you can sort of liken to a spaceship. It's a home or it's somewhere you can live that's intentionally designed to not be connected to any outside inputs for some length of time, at least Yeah. whether you're off grid for your electricity, water, heat, whatever those, those resources, the off grid home, the spaceship is able to provide them internally, or at the very least have enough stored to be functional for however long you expect your journey to be. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put it. Uh, Brandon, any, any additional thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's just, you know, a self-sufficient home that again, can kind of ride you through any kind of scenario, keep you comfortable, safe, healthy, um, you know, during either a voluntary power outage or disconnection from the main grid and, and outer world or by necessity, depending on where you are located. Yeah. So, uh, so those that may not know, um, we, we're all in California, except for Aaron. <laughs> so this has really uh, become a thing for us in California with all the fires that we've been encountering. And they've been doing uh, mandatory blackouts occasionally to try and prevent um, fires during fire scenes. So that's that's a, a good thing for us to start to look at uh, as we continue on. It's possible, you know, being able to have these off-grid capabilities. Um, other than that, kind of looking nationwide, why do you guys think that off-grid homes are getting so popular all of a sudden? Um, Brandon, you can jump in first on that one. I think, you know, looking nationwide, it's not only in California with wildfires and things like that, but you look at, you know, hurricane seasons in the Southeast and just nationwide, you see that our grid is, is old, um, outdated a bit you know, and has, has its problems, you know, snowfall in, in the northern regions and northern climates, so can take out the power grid. So just people, I think today we have the capability, you know, uh, energy production has become cheaper if it's decentralized um, and all sorts of things with climate change happening and, and different weather scenarios happening that aren't, you know, the norm or historic norms. You know, people want to be able to ride those things out and still have some sense of normalcy left in their lives. And even this year, especially 2020, you know, we uh, started to date the podcast here, but 
you know, going through COVID right now, um, people are working from home. So you lose power and it's not just, you know, uh, you're playing games under candlelight or something, but you know, now you can't function, you can't work. Um, you can't have that connection to the outside world. So, you know, being able to be self-sufficient in your home is even more important this year, I'd say, than, than it has been in the past. And yeah, I think we have the capabilities, knowledge, and, and more and more technologies coming out that is making it easier to achieve for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, uh, any thoughts on why do you think people are getting more into um, off-grid homes? Well, I think Brandon really covered it pretty well. Um, I'll rephrase because I'm an architect and that's what we're taught to do. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I think there, the, the reasons are twofold. Uh, the first is ideological where the, the generation that we're all we're in roughly, you know, we were brought up on the reduce, reuse, recycle mantra and the, the social education of, you know, we need to take, you know, advocacy and agency for the world, saving the planet, all of that, that seeped in on a deep personal level. And so I don't think you'd find anybody who would be opposed to making some sort of reasonable moves to saving the planet. And I think going off grid is, is absolutely hand in glove with that idea of being more sustainable, earth friendly, you know, forward thinking. Yeah. And then everything that Brandon hit on also in a practical sense, the weather is not getting any better year after year. You hear about more, you know, power outages, wildfires, hurricanes, all things that are massively disruptive to our pretty comfortable first world lives. Um, so I think people are realizing if there's a way for them to practically mitigate some of those effects, you know, talking about the wildfires, you know, it's a beautiful day outside behind you, Jason, but you know, if the power's out, it's still a beautiful day, but you're not getting anything done. Mm. It's, it's that concept where if you can, have more resilience in everyday life to be ready for whatever happens. And I think last of all, the cost of entry has dropped through the floor over the last two decades mm -hmm. where going off grid 50 years ago, you were looking at a huge investment and a completely different lifestyle than your average person would have had. Now I can say personally, you can on a relatively small budget, enjoy a pretty normal lifestyle and still be completely off grid with just a few adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. And just to give our listeners a little bit of perspective of why I'm I'm suggesting that there's, you know, such a conversation if you haven't seen, you know, you turn on HGTV and there's several series uh several branded shows that are off-grid something, off the grid something. Uh there's YouTube YouTubers that have channels dedicated to their off-grid living. Um, and then I even just saw that, um, and this was a weird one, uh, Ikea, Vox, and Curbed have all banded together to create, and they're throwing all the buzzwords in, an affordable off-grid tiny home. Um, so it's everybody's jumping on board and trying to at attack this, um, you know, all of our housing issues that we have uh in a different way but off-grid seems to be rising to the surface um more lately well for ikea though that kind of makes sense because they've always branded themselves as very modular mm -hmm. so even though it doesn't necessarily you know perfectly translate into what's being done from a marketing perspective it sure does i mean it plugs right in right yeah it's interesting yeah, it was. It's kind of uh, interesting that Vox and Curbed also jumped on on board with that one. 
It'll be the first f- flat packed home you can put together with one Allen wrench. <laughs> <laughs> A hand turning Allen wrench. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of curved, I, I actually found out about uh, Devel in a curved article, Brandon, and they. It was an, an announcement that you guys earlier this year were kind of shifting towards more of a off-grid capable homes, I think is the way that it was phrased. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what you guys are doing with Devel? Sure, sure. Yeah, go, going back a couple of years previous, when we actually started the company, we launched with the the notion that you know we were going to be uh, go all electric with our homes. We wanted to take that environmental stance and also you know cost advantageous to not bring in um, you know, petrochemicals to home and lots of other reasons that we just decided that we were going to go down that path that gave us the option and ability to go, um, completely net positive energy. Um, and the only way to do that being all electric. So that was a stance we took early on, um, and wanted to put renewables on homes. But earlier this year, after a lot of working and figuring out the, the financial aspects of it, we launched these self-powered initiatives, what we called it. And that's basically all of our homes include a solar array and battery backup system. Um, And that's backing up critical loads in the home, right? So that in California during wildfire season, you know, you can have some sense of normalcy in your lifestyle, right? So we have basically a backed up sub panel that has those critical circuits in it. That includes the refrigerator, um, the energy recovery ventilator for our, our ventilation and fresh air delivery system to bring in that filtered and fresh air throughout the home. Uh, safety lighting and lighting throughout. Um, there's a means and methods to cook, so we, we power some kind of cooking circuit, um, and then some some plug loads um, near like desks and things like that, so that people can work and function in the the low voltage rack. So so people can have as long as the transformer in the area doesn't go down with in terms of Wi-Fi and internet, the home will still have internet during that outage. People can still work and, and function within homes. And the overhead garage door, a lot of people don't carry around the keys to their homes anymore. Um, so a means for them to actually access access their home in an average situation as well. And so with that, people can, you know, with the production and the battery, be able to ride out multi-multi-day or week-long, you know, power outage. And we basically, we also have circuit-by-circuit monitoring included in our home so that uh, we know what energy is being used for each and kind of give an allowance of this is how much energy um, you can use during these circuits per day so that you can ride out an, an outage and uh, basically bringing that home to not fully off grid, but a, a sense that again, life can be normal during that time and you can still function. We've also recently launched to, to kind of assist to that. This is an announcement only we've made about a week and a half ago for Devel IQ. That's our own home automation and software platform. And with that, we're able to also send notifications. We have a dashboard in the home so you can monitor that energy and what's left in your battery bank, how much you're producing. You you can get all those energy metrics along with a lot of other things that have to do with home automation. But for the sense of this discussion, um, the energy is being monitored and and clients are being informed and educated on where they're at with that so they can make the right decisions to ride out whatever the predicted, you know, outage length is. That's very cool. Are you guys getting any sort of reports on on your end of how how well homes are performing that you that you've been able to document? Well, I mean, we we've heard testaments from homeowners that you know the fact that having that ability and the functionality during that time frame is is something that has definitely helped us sell homes that were spec homes, and also once people are in the homes, giving that comfort and knowing that life can change and there can be some some hurdles, but they can kind of get through that and. 
you know, live a normal lifestyle. So, yeah. Brandon, I'm, I'm curious about, uh, so how many homes per year are you developing and building? I mean, is, is your model really more of a custom model or have you been able to implement uh, what you guys do where you're maybe doing small subdivisions, you know, or small communities? That's a great question. Uh, for, for next year, we're forecasting to do um, a little over 40 homes. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, we've definitely been able to figure out things and we have a kind of a scale solution, right? So our, our building envelope is the same, you know, no matter where it's going. So we have continuous exterior insulation. We have an airtight structure. Um, we're building basically the passive house metrics um, in terms of airtightness and everything else and having that, you know, thermal bridge free structure um, that can go anywhere and perform really well. So, you know, in some climates it might have more insulation than necessary, but um, for us to be able to, to mass produce what we're doing and mass produce a really energy efficient, comfortable, healthy home, you know, that was the means and methods to get there. So it's building science centric and then layering in the health and wellness and the energy things after that. Um, and it all starts with the building envelope and the assemblies, which is critical to any off-grid scenario as well, because you really want to reduce those loads and require the smallest, you know, battery and solar system possible to power you through your lifestyle. So your, I imagine your land development costs must be infinitely lower than what it would be for example ourselves i mean we we develop uh, infill homes infill communities um and we actually do city ventures does all electric homes as well so that's not a, a concept that's foreign to us uh but we're not technically off grid you know we're connecting to water and sewer and cable and all of the rest of it so i'm can you talk about just how the infrastructure component of it works? I mean, are you literally just kind of plopping a home on a lot of land? And Yeah. Um, so our, so we actually build and we are licensed to build to um, three different code requirements. So we build modular homes. That's a factory built housing. That's a, a state code um, across the U S and then we build to the code or manufactured housing uh, code as well. And then uh, recently acquired a license to be uh, build RV park model homes. So we have different developers we're working with in all facets. And it's it really, it's the same building assemblies, the same quality of home, um, the same type of appliances. You know, some of the RV park model stuff might have smaller appliances, but you know, for, for all, all intents and purposes, it's the same type of home, just a different code requirement that we're building to. And that's based on where it's going, right? So the modular home side of it, which is our, has been our main focus and what we kind of started with, that is uh, built on a crawl space. So it's a fully insulated, conditioned crawl space that's part of our whole building envelope and the volume of the home. So it uh, creates a really nice space, allows us to make all of our connections on site. If we have, you know, two, three, four, five, six modules going together, uh, we can make all the mechanical connections underneath. And then it gives people a place to store and then for the future, maintain too, right? So we can get under there and pretty much all the mechanical systems are accessible throughout, except the little pieces of vertical mechanicals that go up into a wall or something like that. But other than that, it's fully accessible too, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, in terms of like development and doing that, you know, soft cost is huge and, and we can reduce timeframes. You know, what used to take me in my previous life being an onsite builder, you know, 13 to 19 months to build, we can do in six months. So wow. Uh, the soft cost is a huge savings. Time is, you know, the most valuable asset I think we all have today and resource that we have today. So being able to get things done quicker is, is really great too. And then, you know, from an infrastructure, you know, yeah, when we do go into communities and we have, 
you know, 20 plus, 30 plus homes, we can look at different types of avenues for the energy um, distribution throughout that. So maybe it's on, you know, one meter and all these homes are a microgrid set up such that they can communicate with each other and also share and pool energy with each other since they all are behind one meter. So that's kind of another cool feature and facet of, of the two. So and when you get into a community, you know, you have some homes that have, you know, roof slopes that are going to face south, majority, you know, optimally. And then, but you also need some that are facing east and west. So you can pick up that early morning and that late, uh, late evening, late evening uh, sun as well. So that, you know, you can kind of maximize that production and the storage. And then if you can pool that throughout homes, you know, everyone has that self-sufficiency and, and can, you know, also skate through an outage. So in, an, in a grid outage situation, if this is a grid tied community, you know, they're able to be off grid and islanded and can all, you know, live their normal lifestyle too. And that, you know, the self-powered initiative, I should say, you know, that's something that's like our baseline, but we can go up from there and, and pool in things and scale up production and scale up our battery systems such that, you know, we can power the whole entire home and, you know, get through multi-day, week-long outages that way too. Yeah. Brandon, you mentioned uh, kind of scaling up. I chatted with Aaron about this and, and his and his home that he took on. He sort of had that mindset as well of planning out, you know, possibly scaling up as he went on with the home. Aaron, can you talk a little bit about the experience that you had designing, building and living in your home and sort of that perspective of a uh, off-grid homeowner? Sure, absolutely. Um Starting from the very beginning, I I had the opportunity to buy a few acres of completely undeveloped land. And from there, the, the decision to go off grid sort of made itself because it actually worked out to be less expensive to go completely off grid with all our different systems than it would have been to run all of the different utilities, electric uh, specifically, um, all the way out to where we were. So being able to to go sort of full off grid, no wires to or from. Uh, that was that was sort of the the basic paradigm we started off with. Uh, design wise, it was always intended to be what like what you were saying a uh, a, a bit of a, a modular expandable design where you could always bolt on additional components. We worked with a, a great company out of Colorado that helped us design and spec the entire system to be scalable. We started off with you know, a relatively small system. Uh, a couple of years in, we doubled our battery capacity, and that made a huge, uh, a huge impact on skating through the uh, upstate New York winters, when occasionally you'll get no sun for a week, which kind of kills the whole off-grid principle a bit, <laughs> <laughs> unless you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of storage capacity. In terms of design, it was not anything really unusual. Uh, Architecturally, it was a you know basic, well insulated, tight building, but the the off grid systems were really what what set it apart. Just in terms of you know solar power, and then uh, you know all, all of our heating loads we heated with wood, and we used propane for cooking, clothes drying, things like that. Um, so you couldn't call it strictly off grid in the same sense as an all electric home, where it can be completely self supporting. But at the same time, I was able to have enough propane and diesel for our backup generator to run you know, six months at a time without having to leave the property to, to bring wow. in any resources. That's awesome. And you were, uh, what was it? 500 square feet. So you had to be very efficient in your planning of how to store all of that propane and, 
and all the other thing, batteries and things that you needed to, to live on, right? That was the challenge. Uh, propane, diesel, things like that were easy to store in, the, in one of the outbuildings, but the batteries were interesting. We, we didn't use standard lead acid. We actually used uh, nickel iron batteries. They're originally called Edison cells. And it's great because they don't sulfate. They don't degrade. You can beat on them all day long for decades and they just deliver. The only problem is they also produce hydrogen when you're drawing on them hard. And so putting them inside gets really exciting because things tend to explode. <laughs> so uh, working out the, the appropriate kind of enclosure and venting and insulation where we had them outside, but they were still a part of the insulated uh, envelope, but they were actively vented. It was an interesting design challenge to be able to, to work all that out. Wow. Do you guys think that an off-grid home is synonymous with minimalist home or sustainable home? I mean, maybe sustainable, but is an off-grid home the same thing as a minimalist home? I mean, obviously a minimalist home is not an off-grid home, but to be off-grid, you have to be minimalist. I'll answer the, the sustainable side of that equation. Um, and, you know, yeah, I think it is necessary for that. If you look at like the, the highest kind of uh, sustainability certification out there, Living Building Challenge would be, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, their requirements are to have, you know, production, to have storage to get through an outage situation, at least for critical circuits, um, that you can't bring in uh, like city sewer. Um, you need some kind of waste management. And also that you are doing water capture for your potable water systems as well, filtration. So, you know, that is kind of off grid and that's, that's actually a certification process you can go through for that. And I think, yeah, so it's a requirement to go to that highest level of sustainability, no doubt. I think that uh, Michelle sustainable absolutely is, is nearly synonymous with off grid, but at the same time, I don't think necessarily you have to be a, uh, a dogmatic minimalist because it all comes down to, in the end, if you size your system big enough, you can do anything you want. You can have 20, 30, 50 kilowatts of, of solar panels or, or generation, and you don't really need to worry about keeping everything trimmed down. Now, granted that it's a huge upfront investment, but I think just the educating and branding the entire concept of off-grid as inherently minimalist is going to drive away a big component of, of people who could practically with, with the right upfront investment lead a pretty unminimalist life and still be able to be, you know, either completely off grid or have a, a pretty robust backup setup. Well, I mean, even just looking at some of the products that Devel is putting out, like, I think before you guys even got on, you know, Demetrius told me the website, I, looked, I was like, holy smokes. I mean, there, there's nothing necessarily, that has to be minimalist when you're looking at some of these things. So I think that that goes along and, uh, and parallels your point there because I'm looking at it like, shoot, man, get me a piece of property and I'd rather just drop one of these things on there as opposed to going through the normal construction process. You know, I mean, how, how cool would that be? Especially these days, you know, talking about fires and everything we have going on right now. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times my wife's been like, when are you buying a generator? When are you buying a generator? You know what I mean? And, and I have that and I have a lot of different things, but to already be set up that way is a totally, you know, separate discussion um, and awesome choice to have, especially when you're looking at what can come with that. You wouldn't think 
that would fit the normal mindset going back to what we talked about earlier of looking at HGTV and all these other things that people are living off grid. It is not the same thing in, in any way. So it's really cool. Super cool. Yeah. Thank you. That was, you know, what we really want to do is streamline the process, make the process easier for people, kind of limit choice a bit, but give them everything that we thought, you know, was relevant and necessary and, you know, some luxury items too, but you know, our designs are, mo are modern definitely and you know, have like a minimalist feel to it a little bit, uh, but definitely have a lot of features and facets of it that, you know, are kind of full mechanical systems. Actually, we have a separate, uh, from our heating and cooling, our ventilation systems completely separate from that so that we can distribute proper airflow and continuous, you know, filtered air throughout the entire home. So balanced distributed system, which is, is really awesome too. I think realizing that minimalist doesn't have to equal Spartan. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I would say minimalist is a tough word because it can be used in a few different ways. You can talk architecturally and design wise of being a minimalist design just as a look. And then you have the minimalist lifestyle where people are trying to avoid collecting things and having clutter and stuff like that which I think is a little bit different from this type of off-grid living uh, lifestyle. But Aaron, Brandon, who would you say is the, the mark who's in the market for off-grid homes? And is there a different type of person that, that looks for this, this type of product? You know, I think for us, the way we're, we're kind of approaching the off-grid and, you know, it's not always by necessity, like, you know, Aaron being in the woods and being too costly to bring in, uh, you know, utilities there for us, it's, it's that resiliency play. That's, that's the number one, you know, reason that we kind of went down that path environmentally too, but, you know, to give people that ability to get through, you know, those out of situations. So, um, you know, for us, I think it's definitely people that are eco-conscious or that are, are, you know, want to do something right for the environment, do the right thing type, type approach. Um, but also are into technology as well. You know, we have a lot of cool technology features as well. And, um, definitely have a high sense of engineering throughout the home. So people that appreciate the attention to detail and engineering, you know, see eye to eye with our product. And, you know, then those people that have been through outages or, you know, fire seasons and, you know, have had no power for weeks at a time, you know, once that happens to you and you have to live through that, you gain more appreciation for the ability to you know, be able to get through that time frame and live a normal life. Yeah. Aaron. I think if you look at the the concept of of off grid home uh, homes as a market segment, you you can think of the bell curve, and we're we're part way up the slope. I'd say we're past that first ten percent of people who are just nuts and they couldn't care less what anybody else thinks, and they're going to do this just because they feel like it. I kind of fall in that first ten percent. We've moved past that now to people who are a bit more open minded and progressive. And now that they've seen a few really compelling examples, they're like, oh, this is really cool. I'm all in. We're slowly moving toward it being a much more mainstream sort of socially acceptable instead of socially exceptional model where it's something you can mention to your older relatives. It's something you can mention to people who don't have any uh, particular interest in sustainability and they start to go, Oh yeah, I've heard about that. Sounds kind of cool. We're reaching that point of, of mainstream adoption where it's just going to be one more evenly weighted choice to make instead of something that's really out there, really progressive and a little bit scary to the majority of people. 
in in that two that first ten percent, who who is that? Is that the is that the doomsday prepper? <laughs> Brandon Racer. <laughs> Not the doomsday, but the early ten percent was like Aaron mentioned he was in that category. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I would say some of the some of the doomsday preppers where they're just um and painting painting with a little bit of a, a facetious brush, but the people that are just waiting for, for civilization to dissolve for whatever reason, and they want to be ready. And in the meantime, they're willing to look a little nuts, but then you've also just got the people that, that want to be out there. They want to know that they're just completely self-sufficient um, or just the people that think it's really cool to go full throw and live out in the woods. Well, financially, it took the early adopters to, you know, take that challenge on and, and take those initial financial costs on in order to make it, uh, you know, company more and more technologies coming out, more things scaling up, you know, to bring that cost down so that it becomes, you know, a more viable solution. And then, you know, prices continue to drop. And now you're going to see, you know, accountants and people that are like super into the, the financial side of that equation that it's going to, it pencils out now, right? With the cost things are at today, today it pencils out and you get mm-hmm. a good return on that investment. So um, now you get all of that kind of coming into the equation as well. And it just keeps layering like the different advantages that you get from systems like this and having that off-grid capability or being fully off-grid. Absolutely. A lot of states, I'm assuming California may even be more so than New York, but New York offers, I want to say a 30% tax rebate on grid tied sustainability, you know, solar panels, things like that. And so there's, you know, that that's helping sort of balance things out or, or tip the scales toward it being a smart financial choice, not just, uh, you know, a sustainability issue. Well, in California, we have, you know, um, you know, not so much for the PV side of the equation anymore, but now for the battery side, you know, that's becoming the necessity because of the duck curve out here. Um, and what do you do with all that overproduction? And so getting the batteries online to be able to store that, decentralize the network um, such that you can skate through periods. And, you know, I think there's going to be more and more incentives that are going to come out around that going into the future too, um, such that if you can be able to give the utility company some power so they can stop firing up the, the dirtier power plants, that kind of stuff. You know, there's going to be more and more, I think, incentives that come down the line from that. So what do the cities make of, of the off-grid home? Municipalities, uh, the agencies, I mean, especially in California, Brandon, I'm sure you know, California is probably one of the most difficult places to entitle and permit new development. I'm curious, you know, when you go to a city uh, or you talk to a power company or a gas company who's not going to get your service, um, what, what kind of is the reaction? Are they prepared and set up to for this to be the the new mainstream kind of wave of development that that could come in the future? Well, from the utilities perspective, there's not anything really different. You know, like we're not really oversized in the amount of energy load we have or demand that we have on the home. So from that perspective, it's just the same for them. They're just not bringing in the gas side of the equation, right? Uh, from the city's perspective, especially the cities that have you know, had major wildfire issues, you know, they definitely see the advantages of this and uh, appreciate the advantages that we bring to the table when you're bringing solar and battery backup systems and giving people that resiliency that just, you know, solves a lot of other problems that the cities have and taking that off the plate. So yeah, we've had a good reception from the cities we've worked in. In terms of, you know, what we're building in general, like a really high quality home, it, kind of, it does decrease the demand that has on their uh, limited labor pool as well in that you know, most of the inspections are happening at our foundry, uh, which we call our factory. 
And so they don't have to do as many site inspections with their, you know, inspectors and things like that. So we take some of that burden off of them as well, you know, bring in these really high quality homes, put them together and, you know, they have the resiliency aspect kind of already solved for too. So I think we're seeing appreciation and really good reception from most of the cities we're working in, which is, is great. What's one of the complexities of an off-grid home, whether it be design, construction, or living um, that, that you guys have experienced? I think the number one thing is really, you know, that envelope equation, right? Like I personally started building passive house type stuff back in, you know, 2010. So really dialing in, you know, what it takes to build an airtight structure, you know, the insulation, the building science too behind it, making sure when you start making a building completely tight and um, putting insulation on both sides of a wall, you know, you start needing more and more of the science and the physics behind what you're doing to make sure it's going to function and it's going to last and it's going to be durable um, structure. So, you know, once you can dial in those pieces, which to me is really a necessity to going off grid, because again, you want to reduce those loads and, you know, off grid homes should be able to last, you know, in the case of like Aaron or building, kind of in the woods type situation, you know, you don't have labor pools to go out there and kind of continuously fix things either, right? So building a highly durable structure that's going to last is, is really a necessity. And again, bringing down the cost and the, the size of the renewable energy and the storage systems you need is also makes it more advantageous. Yeah. Aaron, you, uh, you hand built yours. <laughs> How was, uh, what, what did you find one of the more complex parts, whether it's construction design or, or living? Well, a couple of a couple of different facets to that. Uh, the most complex part of the the entire endeavor was definitely the uh, the utilities, the services, incorporating the systems in, and sort of iterating on the fly. What's the most efficient, effective way to fill in the blank? So, you know, do we go with with 12 volt lighting so we can pull directly off the batteries, or do we incorporate the lighting circuits into the inverter. So it's just regular AC. That was one of the, the conversations we had of, of many of how do we make this the most efficient system we can to, to max out our, our capabilities and, and make it as, as normal feeling a living experience as possible. In the, on the construction side of things, I was really surprised at how much more difficult things got trying to do it on my own. Um, I can't say I built the entire house myself. I had a few very dedicated relatives who were able to, to come and, and stay, help out, show up for an afternoon, any, uh, any, any number of different times. Uh, but to say I built the whole place about 80% completely by myself, um, that was a complexity that I hadn't really anticipated. Trying to hang drywall on a cathedral ceiling by yourself is... A little more challenging even than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't imagine. Now that you've lived in it and uh, experienced it firsthand, Aaron, what was the what was one of the benefits um, through through this whole process that you found of off grid living? A huge part of it was the uh, the satisfaction, just the 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 knowledge of coming home from from work at my office and being completely out away from everything. We were, we were only five minutes from town, but at the same time, we couldn't see another structure. There was nobody else around. And just knowing that it was completely quiet, 
and that we had absolutely everything we needed right where we were. Yeah. Power, heat, all of that. And especially in the, in the middle of winter, knowing that, okay, whatever, whatever happens, we're good for a good long time. It was a, that was a really fulfilling part of all of the labor that went into it. Just knowing we're, we're all set for the, for the time being. Yeah. Brandon, uh, from, from your, from the builder's side, um, you guys have received, I'm sure a lot of data and feedback from, from your clients. What has been sort of one of the benefits that has come to your mind or your attention about even just being off grid capable for, for your homes? You know, definitely this year we're hearing a lot about the the health and wellness, the ventilation systems. Again, just given where we're at with with uh, the COVID, but you know, on the energy side of the equation, is really like people they take pride in the ownership of having that system. You know, the fact that they also have that built-in resiliency and um, knowledge that they're just more comfortable, right? Like they they're able to meet all of their creature comfort demands. Um, despite what's happening in the outside world around them. And even if they're living in a neighborhood uh, in Phil Lot, that's, that's, you know, they have that ability. So I think it's, it's a com- definitely a comfort thing and a kind of a, a stress reducer, right, too. You, like, you don't have to be concerned and worry about these ancillary things. Um, what does that normal timeline look like for you guys? When you meet with a buyer, I kind of just like filled out your guys's, I did the design thing on there, you know, picked a few packages type of deal. So when someone goes and does that and, you know, gives you your contact info timeline, if they're really interested in doing it, you know, you design with a, you know, two years later, they're living in the house a year later. They're li- how, what does that usually look like for you guys? You know, it kind of depends uh, if they pick just one of our plans and there's no changes to it, you know, we can, you know, it's really six months after permitting is when we say the house can be ready for occupancy. So okay. a lot of that lies in the kind of the municipality or who the permitting authority is for the site portion of the work. Mm-hmm. And so we have instances where uh, in certain fire rebuild areas, um, you know, there's, yeah. there's a streamlined permitting process that maybe, you know, they say takes two weeks. Maybe there's an additional review or some questions or comments that come back and maybe it takes, you know, three or four weeks, but still, you know, that, that phase can be done within a, a month. And if it's an off the shelf drawing, you know, we go six months from there, you, you're looking at seven months. Now, if you want to make some changes and tweaks, which some people and just like to make small modifications, things like that, and maybe add another couple of weeks. And there's just more uh, meetings that happened and back and forth with, with clients to do that process. But, you know, both ways work really well. And, you know, you're looking at, you know, 60, 70% reduced timeframe from building on site for sure. And one of the other elements that's really cool is that while we're building in our foundry, the modules and you know the living part of the structure the foundation's happening simultaneous to that so it's not like you have to do one the foundation before you can start building the house they're happening at the same time which is you know one of the overlaps that does save a significant portion of time for you that was the next question i had okay cool so all that happens in advance you guys have already seen what the site looks like and um and know what needs to take place underneath before you guys bring out your structure that makes sense cool very cool Aaron, you had alluded to the the first ten percent of people, and I think those maybe lean towards the the side of wanting to to build it themselves and really take that ownership of taking on a project like that, which you did. What was the timing on your end um, at at a five hundred square foot house? Uh, what was your timing on on your project? Well. That's a good question. Going back in my mind and try to think about that. 
I want to say overall from, from groundbreaking to move in, it was probably right around eight months. Okay. From sort of late, late summer, getting it weathered in before we got our, our predictable Western New York winter and then doing, uh, doing the interior fit out through and moving in right around spring. Yeah. Okay. And then you guys lived there for how long? Five, was it five years or? I, I lived there with my family for nearly five years. Uh, we started off my, my wife and I and one toddler. And by the time we left, there were four of them. Uh, <laughs> not all toddlers, but uh, yeah, that was, oh, there's one now. <laughs> by the time we, we moved out, there were four kids and six of us in 500 square feet just wasn't working anymore. So <laughs> the, the tiny home had always been a, a temporary measure figuring, well, well, build this for a year, maybe two, and then build the, the, the big house as we call it. Yeah. That was why the, all of the off-grid systems were designed to be scalable to go from 500 square feet, one room up to 2000, 3000 square feet and you know, a, a standard, you know, standard draws on everything. Uh, life didn't quite take us in that direction, but it was, it was interesting doing the, the tiny home living with an increasing roster of occupants. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you said that our new parent Michelle, her jaw dropped. Oh, yeah, four four yeah. kids. I know that feeling. <laughs> I mean, because five hundred square feet—that's just a little over a two-car garage. I mean, yeah. good lord. Yep. Not... twenty-four by twenty-four. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay, we're coming down towards the end. So, a couple more questions for you guys. For the listeners here, they probably have turned this on for because they have some interest in off-grid living what's the one two sort of do's and don'ts whatever uh, part of the the process you want to go to but what are the one or two do's and don'ts that you would pass on to to anyone that's going to take on an off-grid home Aaron you want to start absolutely (laughs) um I've got two one uh one ideological and one practical the ideological is we talked about the lowered cost of entry and how you don't have to necessarily go with the, the minimalism of, uh, of your lifestyle. But if you're going to go off grid in the, uh, the, the complete jump in with both feet sense, I think the most critical point to, to being successful in that is to adjust your mindset to this is, this is something different. This is an adjustment from, the expectations that most people have or the expectations I or you may have grown up with because things are going to go wrong. Things are going to get weird sometimes when, you know, it's winter and something freezes that you weren't expecting or the generator throws a belt and all of a sudden you're out in the middle of January getting greasy because you need to fix it. Or uh, when you are taking a shower per se and the power goes out and the water stops flowing and you're standing there in the dark covered in soap. That's one of those times where instead of just getting frustrated and fed up, you go, all right, should have turned the generator on (laughs) and just sort of embrace that unexpected nature of life a little bit, learn from your mistakes and, and adapt accordingly without getting frustrated or weighed down or just waiting for what's going to happen next. Just, adjust your mindset to roll with it. Yeah. And in a practical sense, 
oversize your systems. Not too much, but go one or two notches above what you think should be all right. <laughs> because you're, you're never going to complain about having too much power yeah. <laughs> or, or too, you know, too much, too, too large of a battery backup. Uh, go, go for a little bigger than you think you, you should and maybe a little more than you might be able to afford and it'll pay off in the long run. Yeah. Brandy? I'd say um, on the do side of the equation, I'd say, you know, definitely um, you know, when, when looking at that building envelope and the structure, like ensure you're following good building science protocols and that that building is going to be uh, a healthy building and is going to be um, something that's going to be really resilient, durable uh, and built for the long term. Um, and then also give yourself a means to understand uh, the data and, and look at the data so that you can improve your behavior. You know, when you go off grid or you want to be off grid, uh, ensuring you're living within some, some sort of boundaries or means I think is important, especially when you're off off grid, like Aaron's houses are. Um, I think that's really important on the don't side of the equation. I'd say don't listen to conventional wisdom and people trying to talk you out of this, you know, that uh, that's out there and, you know, people might think you're crazy, but still, you know, maybe we're, but beyond the early adopter side of the equation, but there's still a lot of people out there that maybe think this is kind of crazy, um, but it's not. There's plenty of technologies and it's out there. And like we've talked about a couple times over, it's, it's financially advantageous at this point. Cool. Thank you guys so much for, uh, for joining us. Um, wanted to make sure that people can find you. Uh, Brandon, what, uh, where can people find out more about Devel, uh, social media, website, anything like that? Yeah, we're on all the social channels. So our website is devel.com. That's D-V-E-L-E.com. And uh, yeah, we have more on Facebook, uh, Pinterest, Twitter, LinkedIn, all those places. LinkedIn, yeah, personally at Brandon R. Weiss. Okay. And Aaron? Well, we're on, uh, we're on LinkedIn and Facebook. The easiest place to find us, though, is at just at our website. And because nobody can spell sovereign, we decided to shorten it for everyone. So we're, we're located at sov-arc, S-O-V-A-R-C-H.com. Got it. All right. Thank you so much, guys, uh, for joining us. So much good, good content for anybody really cool. jumping into this, uh, into this lifestyle. So um, thank you. Nice meeting you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah, that's really cool. Demetrius, Jason, Michelle, great talking with you. You as yeah, well. You too. Good talking with you too, Aaron. Likewise. Thanks a lot, guys. So that was uh, such a good conversation. So I um, wanted to, to just spend a moment just to remind everybody, this is it, <laughs> season three. Thank you for joining us uh, and coming along for the ride. And for those that are have been here from day one, really appreciate your support. Um, I know there's some that have been listening from the beginning, so thank you for doing so. Uh, any last thoughts before we get out of here, guys, for, for season three? Not all at once. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you go ahead. You, you go first. Uh, no, I mean, like I said, I, I feel like I missed so much of the season uh, with just being out on maternity leave and then coming back and it with it being a pandemic. And it's just been a... It's just been a funny, a funny year. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to season four next year and really actually looking forward to being able to record together. I, you know, I miss, I miss us being in the same room. You know, it's just a different environment when we're all 
in our own offices or homes or wherever we are uh, recording virtually. I think it'll be the thank you for that virtual hug, Jason. Yes. So I, I'm looking forward to getting together and, you know, sitting in the same room and being actually on the mic again and just all of that. I'm tired of Zoom. <laughs> Zoom burnout. You, you and everyone else. I'm so fatigued from all this Zoom stuff and talking on a screen and whatever. No, I mean, ultimately, I think we did a, a it was it was neat to see what we could get done. Um, given the different dynamics that are are being um, kind of presented or forced on us these days, and still being able to you know have some really good discussions that uh, around some certain topics, and I and and I'll even argue, I, in some ways I think it was easier and more accommodating. You know what I mean? So um, I think that's I think that's a bright spot. But I was happy how we were able to adapt and do things, and I think the the guests and the topics that you lined up, D, for for this season were great. Um, there's a lot of really good discussions and, and I'd say probably even deeper than, you know, we've gone in the first two, which I guess is good, right? We're supposed to get better as yeah. we go on and on and on. So um, the express stuff was fun too. You know what I mean? Um, being able to do those little quick hits and, and that type of stuff. But uh, I'm looking forward to, I, I'd really like to see what we can talk about when we talk about the future and who those people are that's going to run the future of what we're doing. You know, there's so many, there's so many opportunities for people in our generation coming up here in the next couple of years um, following what you called recession once. So I can just say it was your fault, you know, recession coming at some point <laughs> and a lot of people will exit the industry. You know, what is that new crop going to bring in and what are they going to really drive home? So um, I'm, I'm interested in seeing some of that stuff too. And maybe talking about that next season, which would be cool. But I was, I was impressed at how many episodes you put together um, this year and, and were able to handle. It was kind of shocking to hear that number. And then again, like I said, it was, it's really neat and crazy to hear about how many people are actually listening to the stuff we're spewing. So that's kind of cool as well. Yeah, uh, um, I think it's, yeah, I think the, you, you touched on it a little bit, Jason, the quality of our guests um, has just been yeah. impressive. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that we're drawing uh, guests from all over the United States, um, yeah. in some cases, even internationally uh, with folks who have lived abroad or, or who have businesses abroad. Um, so props to you, Dee, on just, you know, continuing to find uh, phenomenal content for us to, to talk about as we think about spaces. Yeah. We, uh, even with that hair, <laughs> <laughs> as you mentioned, you know he's just going to edit all that out, right, Jason? Yeah, I know. <laughs> as you mentioned, Jason, uh, it'll be exciting to see how, how our industry continues to evolve. Uh, I definitely want to do an episode, uh, a proper episode on how our space spaces are going to evolve, uh, with this COVID thing. Um, going forward and considerations that we're going to take in the event that another uh, novel coronavirus pops up how do we uh, how do we brace ourselves for that in the future why do we even have to like bring that up <laughs> <laughs> i've had enough of it man <laughs> i mean there's another one coming <laughs> so on that note uh thank you again for listening and uh hanging with us all season long it's been fun. Uh, we look Come back next year. Yeah, we look to do it one more, or not one more time, continue to do it. Uh, so come back, stay subscribed so that you know when we come back, and we will talk then. Thanks. If you're still listening at this point, you probably enjoy the show. 
during our hiatus, I invite you to come over to the Spaces Podcast Facebook community. You can find a direct link to that on our website, spacespodcast.com, and join us there to continue the conversation while we're out. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLamey, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.